Look, we have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors. We're glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us again. This evening at 530, we'll be studying from Acts the 9th chapter, Acts the 22nd chapter, and Acts 26. Look at the conversion of Saul. If you have a chance this afternoon to peruse through those chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 22 and chapter 26, where the account of the conversion of Saul is mentioned, perhaps your study will be enhanced. I encourage you now to open your Bible to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll come there in just a moment. Jesus told his disciples to make ready for the Passover. That is recorded in three texts, all of which are parallel. Matthew, the 26th chapter, 17 to 19. Mark, 14, 12 to 16. And then Luke records that in chapter 22, 7 through 12. We'll make reference to all three accounts, but I want us to focus on Mark's account now. And that's why I've asked you to turn to the 14th chapter of Mark, beginning at verse 12. And I want us to read verses 12 to 16 as the basis for our study this morning. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And wherever he goes, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you the large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. And his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Here's what takes place in that context. At verse 12, the disciples, when they killed the Passover lamb, this is the first day of the unleavened bread, when they had killed the Passover lamb, the disciples said, where shall we go that we might prepare a place for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus said to them, he sent out Peter and John. That's not mentioned here, but Luke's account mentions in Luke 22 in verse 8 that the two disciples that are named here are Peter and John. He sent Peter and John and told them to go into the city. And he said, when you get to the city, beginning at verse 13 through verse 15, here's what you're going to find when you get into the city. And here's the three things they're going to find. You're going to see a man. A man's going to meet you carrying a pitcher of water. That's the first thing you're going to see. Secondly, follow him to the house where he goes in, and you're going to tell the master of the house something. Now, Matthew's account and Mark's account vary just a little bit. Matthew's account said, tell him I will keep the Passover there. Mark's account puts it as a question, and that is, where is the guest room where my master may eat of the Passover? Whichever the case, or it may be a harmony, it will be a harmony of the two, they go and they tell the master of the house, you're to see, go into the house, follow the man with the pitcher of water, and when he goes into that house, you tell the master of that house, my master is going to eat the Passover here, show us the guest room where that's going to take place. Now, he'll take you to a room, thirdly, and he'll show you a large room that's furnished and prepared. I want you to notice now verse 16. Verse 16 says, they found it just as he had said. Let's back up now and see what just took place. 
you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. You're going to follow him into the house. And when you get to the house, you're going to ask the master of the house, where is the guest room? He'll take you up to the upper room. You'll find the guest room there furnished and prepared. And verse 16 now says that when the disciples went out, they came into the city and they found it just as he had said to them. You might underline that phrase. Have you ever found it just as he said to you? Do you look at something the Lord has promised, something the Lord has warned of, something the Lord has told you, and you go out and you find it just as he said to you? Now there's a parallel account to this, and I want you to turn back with me to Matthew's account. Mark mentions this, but I like the wording of Matthew's account. Let's go to Matthew 26 and in verse 19. Here is the key to this. And the key to this is that verse 19 said, the disciples did as they were directed. Notice verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. Now notice the connection. The disciples went and did just as they were directed. And when that took place, they found it just as he said. Now let's just play with that for a moment. Let's suppose that the disciples had not done just as he directed. They said, uh, Jesus said to Peter and John, go into the city. Suppose they went out into the country. They would not have found it just as he said. They wouldn't find a man with a pitcher of water. They wouldn't have found the upper room. That was contingent on them doing just as he said, just as they'd been directed. Suppose they'd gone into the city and they saw a man that had a pitcher of water, but they decided to follow the man with a donkey over here instead. They would have not have found the upper room and found it just as they said. Finding it just as he had said to them was contingent on them doing just as he had directed. When they did just as he directed them, they found it just as he had said to them. I want us to look at that phrase this morning and talk about found it just as he had said to them. They found a room just as he had said to them. Perhaps you're finding rooms all along, not literal rooms, but there are rooms that we find, and we find it just as he had said to us. What a surprise when we find it just as he said. I want to talk about two things. Let's start with this, and we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about rooms that we will find just as he said. Jesus said to the disciples, here's what you're going to find, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water, he's going to carry you to a house. You're going to see a master of the house, and you're going to talk to him, he's going to carry you to a room, and it's furnished and prepared. And they found it just as he had said. You're finding rooms, and when you get to that room, you're going to find it just as he said to you. How so? Well, here's the first. Let's go to Matthew 6 and verse 33. Here's what the Lord directed us. The Lord said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Let's talk about the context of that. The context of that has to do with material things. That is putting our focal point on material things, and in that context he talks about worrying about our food and our clothing and our shelter, what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall put on. And then Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. By the way, this is in that great Sermon on the Mount we've just finished last week in our Bible studies. And Jesus is saying in this context that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This has to do with your relationship to God and making God your priority. And when you do that, all of these things, the necessities of life, not the luxuries, but the necessities of life, food, clothing, and shelter in the context. 
will be added unto you. Now that's conditioned on something. We have to do just as the Lord said. There has to be spiritual priorities. Let us seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When that is your priority, first and foremost for God to rule in your heart more than anything else above material things, above, uh, among, above uh, money and wealth. And worry about the material things. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then the promise is you'll have food and you'll have clothing and you'll, sh you'll have shelter. Now how so? Well, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I'm going to be working and I'm not going to be lazy. 2, Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 10, that uh, we are to even let the one who would not work. If man would not work, neither should he eat. We are to let him starve. And so here's one who's not seeking first. He's lazy. And he is a, to be allowed to starve to death because we're not to let him eat, the text said. Don't let, in other words, you don't help him eat. You don't give to that man. But a man who's, who's seeking first the kingdom of God is going to work and he's not going to be lazy. Secondly, family takes care of family. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'll not take the time to develop that. I'm just making a passing reference from 1 Timothy 5. That when there comes a need in one's life, the first priority is family takes care of family. That's why the text says in verse 16 a little bit later, If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them and let not the church be burdened, that it may relieve those that are widows indeed. And so here is children mentioned in verses 1 to 5. Here's children taking care of their parents. Here's children taking care of their grandparents. Instead of that being the burden of society or that being the burden of the church. So when we're seeking first the kingdom of God, family takes care of family. Furthermore, Acts chapter 2, here was a case. That is when the church just got started. Where disciples were in need and brethren sold their possessions and they pooled their money together to take care of those who were in need. Here is brethren taking care of needy saints. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. The contribution was to take care of those needy saints in Jerusalem. So if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you're going to have the necessities of life. And so you may not have the luxuries. You may lose your house, you may lose your car. The bank may take some things back from you because you can't pay for those, but you're going to have food and clothing and shelter if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now that's contingent upon us putting spiritual things first. And that's going to be a room you're going to find. It's going to be just like He said to you. You're doing the will of the Lord. You're seeking first the kingdom of God. You're going to always have the necessities of life. You don't need to worry about food, whether or not you're going to be able to eat. Whether or not you're going to have a place to live, you'll always have that if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Here's another. Turn to Proverbs 22 and verse 6 with me if you will. God has given us a promise that if you train a child in the way that he should go, when he is old, he'll not depart from it. You know the passage and you know it well. Indeed, it is a proverb. Now that's conditioned on something. Remember in our case in Mark 14, Jesus said, go into the city. That's what you have to do, just as I direct you. And here's what you will find. Well, here's the going into the city now. Here's its condition on training the child in the way that he should go. What does that include? Well, that includes uh, proper spiritual training. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, if you will. In the relationship of the family, here are some responsibilities laid down in Ephesians chapter 6 for parents in raising their children in the spiritual direction. He said, and look at verse, verse 4. He said, uh, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That is, you bring them up in the direction of the Lord. You train them in spiritual training. So that includes spiritual training. Here's what else that includes. Let's turn to the book of Proverbs, if you will. It includes discipline, and it includes 
correction. You train a child in the way that he should go, that includes discipline and that includes correction. Let's go back to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, the 29th division, we're going to look at several different Proverbs in our study this morning, so if you don't have an Old Testament, perhaps there's one in the pew close to you that you can find. Turn to Proverbs, the 29th division, and look at verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left himself brings his mother to shame. So here is the rod and here's the reproof. That is, here is verbal correction. Then there is discipline to ensure that correction. Let's look again at verse 17, same chapter. Correct your son while, and he will give you rest, and he will give delight to your soul. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But you correct the son, so it includes discipline and correction. It includes being a proper example to your children. Go to the book of Deuteronomy. In what seems to be the second sermon that Moses preaches on the eve of going into the land of Canaan, Moses warns them that if you want your children to do right, and you want them to fear God, you're going to have to fear God yourself and teach them so. So notice at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all of your might. You be dedicated, you be devoted, you be what you should be. Now verse 6. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart. Not a memorization of these words, but you take these words into your heart. That is, you make them apply to your own life before now, verse 7, you ever teach them to your children. So what does that include? That includes spiritual training, discipline and correction, being a proper example. Now when you train a child in the way that he should go, here's what you're going to Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Children will misbehave. But the rod will drive it far from him. The rod, correction, discipline, stops the misbehavior. Isn't it interesting? He does just like the Lord said. You start disciplining the child, you, you consistently apply it, you find out that this room is just like the Lord said it would be. Here's something else. The child's not going to die. If you beat him with a rod, that's discipline, you spank him, he will not die. Then kill the child. The child may act like he's dying. child may act like he's, he's hurt, but it doesn't make the child die. The child's not going to die from discipline. We find it just like the Lord had said. And you'll find out they turn out to be just like you trained them. Ezekiel 16.44 is a proverb that says, like mother, like daughter, they turn out to be just like you showed them. Here's the example mom sets, that's how the daughter turns out. Here's the example the dad sets, that's how the son turns out. Here's what we taught them, that's how they turn out. Find out the Lord was right about that. We go to the room and we find out just like the Lord said. They're going to turn out just like we trained them. And when they're old, they'll be strong and they'll be faithful. And we find out, you know what, it's just like the Lord said. We go to the room and we find out prepared and it's ready just like it's furnished, just like the Lord said. There's something else you'll find. Here's another room you'll go to. You'll go to a room and you'll find out that evil association corrupts good morals. Be not deceived, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Evil communication corrupts good morals. Evil association corrupts good manners, one translation will say. I want to suggest to you there are abundant warnings about associations. Let's take a look at some of those. Let's turn to Proverbs 1 again. Again to the book of Proverbs. We haven't been to chapter 1. But let's go to chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs. And what the warning is in chapter 1 is that they will influence you in the wrong direction. Now whether you believe that or not, that's what the Lord had said. I'm not sure that Peter and John fully understood that they were going to exactly what all they're going to see, even though the Lord had told them that. 
they're, they're amazed when they get there and they find out it's just like he said. Here's what the Lord's saying to you. Look at Proverbs 1 beginning at verse 10. My son, as sinners entice, you do not consent. And they will come and say, come with us and let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down into the pit. Look at verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. The point is they're going to influence you in the wrong direction when you associate with those who have a different standard. We become like our associates. Do not go with an angry man, the text says. And with a furious man, do not go, lest you learn his ways, the proverb says. You become just like him. You spend time around someone who always blows their stack, then next thing you know, you're going to be blowing your stack. That's the warning of the proverb. And here's what's going to happen. Abundant warnings about associations. And when you associate with those who are given to corruption, here's what you're going to find. It's going to start corrupting your standard. You say, well, I, I've been spending some time with these people and I find out some of my standards are changing. Big surprise, you found it out just like the Lord had said. You allow your children to run with the people of the world and the next thing you know, their standards are being corrupted and the lines are being blurred between right and wrong and you're surprised at that. You just walked into a room and found it just like the Lord had said. It's furnished and prepared just like the Lord said. You'll find yourself doing the very same thing. Remember the Psalm? Psalm 1. Blessed is man who walks not in the counsel of the God nor stands in the way of the sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He starts listening to their counsel, then he stands in their way. And the next thing you know, he's sitting in their seat. He's doing the very same thing. And so when we associate with people of the, of the world and continue to make those our bosom buddies, don't be surprised when we become just like them. You're going to find it just like the Lord had said. Here's another room you'll go to. In Acts 20 and verse 35, Paul, in his address to the Ephesian elders, made the statement, and he's quoting from the Lord that the Lord had said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Now that's not recorded in the Gospels, but Paul records it here for us. He said it's more blessed to give than receive. Now let's talk about the context of that. The context of that is helping those who are in need. Let's go back to Acts 20 just for a moment. This is where Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He talked about how he had supported himself. And with these hands, he said, I'd supported myself, and I'm paraphrasing of course. And with these hands he was able, he taught them that they should labor and that they should support the weak, just like the Lord had said. It is more blessed to give than receive. I want to tell you, those who receive are blessed. When someone is in need in this context, they're in need of benevolence. They are in poverty. And when they receive food and they receive clothing and they receive shelter, they're blessed. They're not only blessed, they're happy. They rejoice. But here's what this text says. When you are the one that gives, you're going to find that you're blessed and you're happier than the one who receives. When you're the one who gives, you're going to find that you're more thrilled at the another's receiving than you are at receiving yourself. You notice that when you give someone a gift. When, you're, when you pick the gift out and you, you're excited about buying the gift, you're more excited about giving it than you are receiving what they may give to you. And that's a room you walk into and you come to find out the Lord said it just like it is. It's more blessed to give than receive. Here's another room you walk into. Bad choices have serious consequences. The Lord has told us about a room 
He said, when you get there, you're going to find it just like I told you. It's going to be furnished and prepared. What did the Lord say about this room? Well, he said, bad choices have serious consequences. Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard. You know what that means? There are consequences that come with sin. That does not always involve guilt. Guilt can be forgiven. Guilt is gone. But still the way of the transgressor is hard. Let's give some more warnings of that. You see, the Lord warned about consequences. He said the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs 6. Let's go to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. You hear me talk about units of chapters. That would be a unit of chapters that warn about the harlot. Don't go with the harlot. Don't associate with the harlot. Don't get near the harlot. There's dangers of being around the harlot. She will try to allure you, and when she does, there are consequences that go with that. Look at Proverbs 6 and verse 33. Wounds and dishonor will he get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. You mean he can't be forgiven? Oh, sure he can, and he will. But wounds and dishonor will he get. Do you remember David with Bathsheba? That he said in Psalm 51, my sin is ever before me. And he's not always talking about not being forgiven. No, 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 no. In Psalm 51, he is talking about forgiveness. He is embracing forgiveness. But he said, here's the cloud that ever hangs over me because of that. There are consequences that go with sin. 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul talked about how sin progresses further and further. Evil men shall wax worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. You go further into sin. And you go even further. And then you go even further. And then you go even further. You see, the warning is this. The warning, the Lord warns, and here's the room he's told us about. He's warned us that there are consequences that come with sin. Don't be surprised. When you toy with sin, you find it just like he said. I want to tell you, many have been the preachers. Who have had affairs. They have divorced and they have remarried contrary to the scriptures they set correct their lives and they come back and they're scratching their heads wondering why don't brethren embrace me why am i not used like i used to be i used to be in demand for meetings i used to brethren used to call me with questions nobody has anything to do with me anymore the way of the transgressor is hard don't be surprised when you walk into a room and find it just like the lord had said what the lord said about that there are consequences to sin. Here's something else. Here's another room the Lord told us about. The Lord told us about this room of resisting the devil and he will flee. James 4 and in verse 7. In the context of spiritual adultery, which is what that passage is about. Rather than toy with sin, that's spiritual adultery. Resist the devil, he says, and he will flee from you. Let's talk about what resist means. Resist means you fight him. You don't yield in the slightest. You consistently oppose him. Now, resisting the devil is not making a, a hit at the devil as if you're punching him, but then you embrace him, but then you get mad at him and you punch him again, and yet you still let him live with you. And then you punch him again because you're mad at him, but you haven't, you haven't fled from him. You haven't shunned him. And what the Lord said is you, you flee from the devil. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's what you'll find. When you flee from the devil, you'll find out temptation is not getting stronger. Is your temptation getting stronger? The one, the one you're wrestling with and run you're, you're, you're struggling with? 
And you say, I feel like that, that uh, I was knee deep in this and, and I keep getting further and I feel like I'm nearly up to my neck in this sin, and, but I'm resisting the devil. Maybe you're not resisting. Maybe you're making punches at him. And you're not really resisting. If you resist the devil, he's not gaining ground on you. You see, compromise. When I compromise with Satan, where I, where I, I yield just the slightest, thinking that if I yield a little bit, maybe things are going to be better. That's like feeding the neighbor's dog at your door and then wonder why he won't go home. I, I like to get rid of this dog. I don't know why he won't go home. I, I feed him every night right here at the door, but he won't ever go home. And we do that with sin. We're feeding it. And it stays with us. And it will never go. The text is saying, you resist Satan and he'll flee from you. And when you do that, you're going to find it just like he said. That's the room you walk into. Here's another room you walk into. The Lord told us about this room. And he said, if you obey your parents, you'll live long on the earth. Let's go to Ephesians 6 and then we'll look at the Old Testament passages upon which that might be based. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Again, this is the family relationship dealt with in chapters 5 and 6. And he said, children, obey your parents and the Lord... For this is right, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And here is the promise, verse 3, that you may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. We see the blessing of, of life was to those who respected their parents. Notice a couple of Old Testament passages to give us the insight where Paul might be quoting from. Go to Exodus 20. Exodus 20 and in verse 12. Exodus 20 and in verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land in which the Lord God is giving you. They're about to embark upon going into the land and you children obey your parents. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And if you do that, you may live long on the earth. Let's go to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5 is, by the very nature of the book, a reiteration of the law, the re-giving of the law. And here we have the Ten Commandments again, and again the statement is made, Honor your father and mother, as the Lord God has commanded you, that your days may be long, and that you may do well, be well with you in the land that the Lord God has given you. Same point, repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here's what we find. You go into this room, and children are being obedient and respectful to their parents. Not rebellious. Not with an uh, ungodly attitude toward authority. Here's what they're going to find. You're going to find that those children who obey their parents are not the wild, rebellious ones that destroy their lives. I think this is a general principle. It is not saying if you obey your parents, you get into the land, there's nothing going to happen even in the land of Canaan that would ever take the life of an obedient child. He's not saying that about children now. It's a general rule. And here's the general rule. You will find that those who obey and respect their parents are not the wild rebellious ones that do things that destroy their lives. They're not the reckless ones who end up shortening their lives. They're not the ones who get drunk. They're not the ones who are on drugs. They're not the ones who speed down the highway and consequently destroy their own lives and the lives of others. Generally, they live longer. Their life will be well. And you're going to walk into that room and find out, you know what, it's just like the Lord had said. Just like the Lord had said. Find it just like he said. But here's another room you'll go into. Let's go to the book of Proverbs now. We notice a few things from Proverbs that the Proverbs tells us certain things that sometimes when we discover the room, we're kind of surprised. Wow. I'm kind of amazed at that. And yet when we look around, we find out this is just like the Lord had told us. 
You see, the disciples shouldn't have been really startled when they walk in and say, this room's furnished and it's prepared. That's exactly what the Lord had said. When they saw a man carrying a pitcher of water and going into a house, that shouldn't have shocked them. That's what the Lord had said. Here's one of the things that shouldn't shock us. Proverbs 18 and verse 17. That there are two sides to the story or to the report that you hear. Proverbs 18 and in verse 17. The first one to deplete his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. You know what that says? There are two sides to the story. You ever get involved with some friend and some, someone that you're close to and they're telling their side of the story about someone else, about how bad they were, what they did? And you, it's unbelievable that someone would treat them that way. And you begin to listen to that story and you begin to buy into the story only to find out later there's another side to the story. Not that anybody's lying. Maybe they are lying. It may be a different viewpoint. And that seems right, Proverbs says, until the neighbor comes and examines him and says, you know what, there's more to this than what you've been told. And you find that there's another side to that story. And when you find out, you know what, that shocks me. I, I, I listened to every word they said, and then I heard there's another side to that. And I shouldn't have jumped to conclusions. We just walked into a room, the Lord had said, this is the way it's going to be. We find it just like the Lord had said. Here's another room you'll go into. And that is in Proverbs 15 in verse 1, that a soft answer turns away wrath. You, you, you ever get into it with someone? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a neighbor. And they're getting heated and they're getting agitated. They're raising their voice and you're getting agitated. And do you ever find that the more agitated you get, the more agitated they get. And then the thing escalates. And then have you ever found, as this text says, a soft answer turns away wrath and a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you ever found that, that when things are beginning to escalate, the softer answer that you give, you don't raise your voice, you don't get excited, you don't get mad, that, that it seems to calm the whole circumstance. And you stand back and you're amazed. I, just, I, didn't, I didn't argue back, I just kind of softly answered and it kind of died out. We just walked into a room that the Lord had told us the way it would be. We found that just like the Lord had said. Let's go to another room now. Let's go to 22 and in verse 3. There's another proverb. This shouldn't surprise us. We'll walk into this room and we find it just like the Lord had said. Furnished and prepared. We followed a man with a pitcher of water into this room. It says a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Those who use wisdom avoid trouble. You see, wisdom is not being smart necessarily. It involves being smart. It's not book smart. But wisdom has to do with looking down the line and looking where this is going to carry. If I make this decision, what's the consequence of that going to be? If I set this as a precedent, what's that going to do for future circumstances? If I go down this road, where is it going to carry me? What's going to happen tomorrow or the next day because of this decision that I've made? And wisdom, using some wisdom causes you to avoid trouble. Maybe like raising your children. Here's a decision you make about this older child and what you didn't realize, you just set a precedent that when the next child comes along, you're going to have to do the same thing to be consistent and you didn't want to do that. But wisdom says you look down the line and say, you know what, I want to be consistent because I don't want to do this with the rest of the children so you set your rule early. And those who use wisdom avoid trouble. 
And when you use some wisdom and stay out of trouble and avoided the trouble others got into, you're shocked and surprised. And that's the room the Lord told you about. Just like he said, it's furnished and prepared. Let's go to another room. We go to another room and look at chapter 15 and in verse 22 of the book of Proverbs. And that is, there are several Proverbs, at least three that make this point. We'll only pay attention to this one, but they all say essentially the same. And that is, there is wisdom in seeking advice. Some people think they need no advice. They get ready to embark upon some major decision in life, and they don't need any advice. They have as good advice and wisdom as anybody, and I don't need to ask anybody for their input or their advice. And they may find out their wisdom didn't work. Here's what the proverb writer said. Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. There is some wisdom in seeking advice. Doesn't mean you follow everybody's advice, but seeking some wisdom from this one and from this one and from that one, even someone you know is going to disagree with your conclusion to test to see if they've got a good reason you need to back off of that. There's wisdom in that. And you go into that room and you begin to test some wisdom by asking for wisdom and for advice from others, you're going to find it just like the Lord had said. Here's, here's another. Let's go to Proverbs 14, if you will. And in verse 29, here's a room the Lord told you about. And when you get there, you're going to find it just like the Lord had said. And that is that one with a short temper is going to act foolish. That might be you. You got a short temper? Chances are at some point you're going to do something foolish. You're going to say or do something foolish. You got a child that's got a short temper? Watch and be careful. They'll do something foolish sooner or later. You got a good friend with a short temper? Keep your eye on them and I guarantee you they'll do something foolish. You say, how do you know? Here's the room the Lord told me about. Look at verse 29. He that is slow to wrath has great understanding. But he who is impulsive, short of spirit, the footnote says, exalts folly. The Lord had said, those with short tempers will do something foolish. And so I walk into the room and I got a short temper and I let it blow and I did something foolish. Lord told me about this room. Found it just like he said. Found it just like he said. Here's another room. Proverbs 26 and in verse 17. Proverbs 26 and verse 17. Have you ever inserted yourself into somebody else's business? A quarrel between two people? And you tried to insert yourself and you end up getting hit by both sides? And they both then start shooting in your direction. And you think, I, I, I don't understand how this happened. I, I, I don't, how'd this happen? I'm just trying to help. And here's what the proverb writer said. The Lord told us about this room. He that passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. You're going to get bit. Don't be surprised if there is a quarrel going on that you're not involved in. You don't have a dog in the fight. And you stick your hand in the middle of that, you're going to get bit. And you're going to find out, you know what, just like the Lord had said, I, I, I inserted myself where, where I didn't have any business and I got bit. The Lord had told you about this room. It was furnished and it was prepared. Now let's talk about the second thing. We're not going to spend much time with this. We spent the bulk of our time talking about the rooms the Lord told us about. But let's talk about the reaction now. Let's talk about two reactions to finding it just like the Lord had said. When you go into a room... And you find this room just like the Lord had said. Remember what the Lord had said to the disciples. And when they got there, it's exactly like the Lord had said. What kind of reaction? Here's the first. There's going to be stronger faith in the Lord because he was right. 
When you find you walk into a room and it's just exactly like the Lord had said, that calls for stronger faith because he was right. Let's go back to the disciples now for a moment. Think of what that meant to Peter and John. To see that the Lord had told them and it was exactly, not close, but exactly like the Lord had said. Suppose they had seen a man carrying something, but it wasn't a pitcher of water. Oh, it was a basket of bread. And they follow him and they found them in the room prepared just like, the Lord is close, he's carrying something. Or suppose he had not gone into a house, but gone into a barn, into a stable. And that's where they found a room prepared. Or suppose they had followed a man with a pitcher of water, gone into the room, but the room was not prepared. It was furnished, but not prepared. He was close to what the Lord had said, but that's not the way it was. They found it exactly like the Lord had said. You know what that means? They had to understand and they had to conclude the Lord's right about that. And that calls for stronger faith. And so when we enter all these rooms that we just talked about and we find it just like the Lord had said, that means I can believe every promise He's made. So when I experience something, for example, the way of the transgressor's heart, that reminds me the Lord knows what He's talking about and I can trust everything He said. I can trust every warning He has given. And I can know that he's God and believe every word he has spoken. Remember what Peter or Paul said in Acts 27 and verse 25 in the midst of the shipwreck when it looks like everybody's going to die. He said, an angel appeared to me this night and told me there'll be no loss of life. And he said, I believe God that it should be just as he told me. So it might be the room of walking into training your children and you see that it did exactly what it, it corrected the discipline problem. If they did turn out in the way that they should go. Or it might be the evil associations corrupted good morals. It is exactly like the Lord had said. That calls for stronger faith. I, I, the Lord was right. I have to believe every promise, heed every warning, and believe everything he said. And furthermore, not only does it call for stronger faith, but it gives me confidence in everything that we cannot test, whether past or future. I can trust exactly what the Lord had said about his creation. I can't test that because we can't go back and do the creation over. But I can believe everything he said about creation because what I have found, every room I've been into, it was exactly like the Lord had said. Not close, it's exactly like the Lord had said. Therefore, I can believe everything he said about creation. I can believe everything he said about the world flood, Genesis 6 to 9, we've been studying about. I can believe every word of that because I found the room just exactly like the Lord had said. I can find what he believed to be, uh, what he said about the nations to be true. The development of the nations and how they developed and how they came about and how they were scattered. I can believe every word of that. I can believe what he said about the birth and the life of Christ recorded in the Gospels. I believe every word of it. That indeed Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I can believe what he said about the second coming. I can't test that because it hadn't happened. I can't go to the laboratory and do that over and over and let's see if we get the same results. I have to believe what he said about the second coming because I found every room I've been into, I found it just like he said. I can believe every word he said about the end of time. Then cometh the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23. And I can believe every word he says about the judgment to come, where we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now see, I can't test that. And so I have confidence in everything the Lord has said, both past and the future. Because every room I go into, I find it just like he said. I find it fully furnished. I find it prepared. I followed a man with a pitcher of water. He led me to the master of the house. The master of the house took me to an upper room and I found it just like the Lord had said. 
And that gives me confidence in everything the Lord has said, whether past or future, that I can believe every word of that. You see, the disciples did exactly what the Lord had told them. He said, go into the city. They went into the city. You'll see a man with a pitcher of water. Follow him. They followed him. Tell the master that your master is going to eat the supper there. They did. And when they got in the room, they found it just like he had said. Just as he had said to them. And that's what we will find as well. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand, while we sing? Would you come while together we stand, while we sing?